You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi everybody, David Guzik here with a special pre-recorded version of our YouTube question and answer program. This particular question and answer program being pre-recorded is taken from questions that I wasn't able to get to in the live chat. So we're going back over the past several months, taking notice of the questions that I wasn't quite able to get to, and we're dealing with those in these pre-recorded videos. So again, I just want you to sit down and we'll talk about these one by one. And the first question comes from Kristen. She asked this question, uh, are special needs kids and adults who have very little comprehension saved? Well, Kristen, let me say first and foremost, that is an excellent question and a question that's commonly asked and for good reason, I believe. They wanna know, are people with special needs automatically going to heaven? And I have to say, what this question really deals with is what can be called the concept of accountability. Now, there are some people in the world of Christian theology who are very dismissive of the idea of the age of accountability. But I believe that there is a principle that is established in the scriptures, and I'll talk about that in just a moment a principle that isn't tied to a specific age, but to a concept. So we can't say exactly when a child becomes accountable before God, but we see the principle in many passages of scripture. So I think the idea of the principle or the concept of accountability is something that cannot be dismissed outright. So let me give you a few places in the scriptures where we see this idea. And of course, let me tie it directly back to your question. If there is a principle of accountability or the concept of accountability explained to us in the scriptures, then those who are not of full accountability before God will be judged on a different basis than those who are of full accountability before God. And it may very well be that those who have special needs, those who have particular diminishment in their mental or other kind of skills, they may never come up to that place of full accountability as would be common for the rest of humanity. If that is the case, then it would argue that in the mercy of God expressed to us in and through the saving work of Jesus Christ, it may very well be, I can't say this with absolute certainty, but it may very well be that those who do not reach this age or principle of accountability, those people may uh, be very well in heaven because they have not come up to that place of full accountability. Let me go over some scriptures here that speak about this. First of all, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 35 through 39, God here indicates a difference in moral culpability or moral responsibility that exists between children and adults. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 1, starting at verse 35. Surely 
Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give to your fathers. Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. Again, we find this principle here that God is making a clear distinction in accountability between those who are adults, those who are of full age. And look, there are many people who would want to begin to tie you down to a specific age. Well, what is the age of accountability? Is it 10? Is it 13? Is it 18? Is it whatever? I would just say that the scripture gives no specific age. I don't argue for an age of accountability, but I argue for the concept of accountability. And that age of accountability may be roughly the same for uh, humanity in general, but God may apply it differently to different people. And in the case of special needs, children or adults, it may be that they never reach a place of accountability, certainly not on the same level. We find this principle at work with Israel in the wilderness. When God held the adult generation of Israel guilty of their sin of unbelief in entering Canaan, yet he did not hold the children to the same accountability. Again, that's taking the idea of Deuteronomy chapter 1, starting at verse 35 that I just read to you. It's expanding it even further or repeating it probably more properly in Numbers chapter 14, beginning at verse 29. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 16, speaks to the same principle. We read here, For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Now, the big picture in Isaiah chapter 7 is God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, is telling the rulers of Judah that they will be conquered and in a fairly short time. But how does he express that time to come? Before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. In God's perception, there is a time before which children know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Matter of fact, I find this very interesting when we connect it with something that the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 9. He said this, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Paul says that there was some life that he had in regard to God before the commandment came to him. Now, this is plausibly, I can't say it's certain, it's plausible that Paul said, or what he meant here, was that he was alive apart from the law before he was of the age to understand his culpability or his guilt before God. He says something similar in Romans chapter 7, verse 11, where he says, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. In other words, Paul came into a place of being dead spiritually, killed spiritually, when he came under the law. Now, I need to make something very clear here. 
this is one of those areas of theology where you feel like you're walking through a minefield because there are many potential errors, some of them serious errors that someone can make when talking about doctrines like this. It is true that we are born with an Adamic nature. That means a nature received from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Absolutely true. We are born with an Adamic nature and we sin because we are fundamentally sinners. I don't think that those two things I would question at all from the scriptures. Nevertheless, there is reason to believe that God does not condemn individuals on their basis of having the Adamic nature alone. I'm not trying to deny that there is a fallen Adamic old man in humanity. Okay, we understand that. The Bible clearly states that. What I'm just saying is, there's reason to believe that God does not condemn individuals on the basis of their having the Adamic nature alone. Guilt under their own sins is also a basis for judgment. And we see this idea presented to us several times in the scriptures. Revelation chapter 20, verse 13 says this, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Again, it doesn't say that they were judged according to their received fallen nature, though it's true. We all have one, except for Jesus Christ, who was uh, miraculously born of a virgin. But, but again, we see that when they people are judged, they are budged, judged according to their works. Now, they can also face some measure of judgment because of their received nature. I'm just saying that the Adamic nature alone is not what is judged. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, a very famous verse, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul did not write, Everyone born with a sinful nature falls short of the glory of God. Even though you could say that that is true as well. But that's not what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote. What we have is, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, therefore, as it says here in Romans chapter 5, therefore, just as one through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, I understand you can understand the all sinned there by saying that we all sinned in Adam, which in a sense is true. But it is also true that our own sin, our own knowledge that we sin against, makes us accountable, culpable before God. There are several passages in the scripture that lay our guilt to our own trespasses and sins, and not to our inherited Adamic nature alone. These passages mention our guilt 
without making any reference to inherited sin. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Again, not referring to Adam's sins, but to our own. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. See, this is just what I'm getting here. The scriptures again and again give us a principle of accountability, where it is not only what we inherit from Adam that is under God's judgment, but it is our own sin. And our own sin is measured and evaluated according to how much knowledge, how much light that we have. So, Kristen, to answer your question most straightforwardly, I have to say, the scriptures do not clearly and categorically speak to whether or not special needs children or adults will be in heaven. However, the principles we have which do establish the concept of accountability tell us that they will be under a far less severe judgment than the mass of humanity in general. And it may very well be that there is a room in the mercy of God. There's enough room, perhaps, in the mercy of God to bring those to salvation in and through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So it's a fascinating question. I think it's an important question, and I hope that's helpful for you. Okay, the next question comes from Kranthi. And it simply asks this question, will smokers go to heaven? Here's what Kranthi asks. Good day, David. I want to speak about my dad who recently passed away. He prayed many times, even with tears I have seen, but he did not have victory over smoking and drinking. Will he go to heaven? Wow, Kranthi, let me say, first of all, I'm so sorry to hear about your father. That's a loss for any person, and our sympathies and condolences are with you. Now, in the question that you ask, you say that your father was a man who prayed, and that's good. I suppose that it's possible that somebody can pray merely out of religious ritual, or they can pray to a false god. Of course, those things are true. But I'm going to take your statement that your father was a man who prayed many times, even with tears. I'm going to take that as a, uh, I'm going to choose to take it in the best way possible. That there was definitely some evidence of true spiritual life in your father. Okay. Well, let me say this then. What does it mean then? If your father did not have victory over smoking and drinking, does that mean that he will uh, not go to heaven or he will go to heaven? Okay, let's examine this on the basis of just general principles. First of all, it is true that someone can be a genuine Christian and still have sin in their life. I hope that's true because I know me speaking on this side of the camera... And you, everybody that I'm speaking to out there, 
You have sin in your life, even if you are a godly believer. None of us have achieved the place of sinless perfection. So someone can be a Christian and still have sin in their life. The question is, and it's a valid question, how much sin? How many sins? What types of sin? To what degree will the sinfulness be present? You see, if your dad was in bondage to that sinful habit of smoking, even if he was in bondage, a slave to that habit, that's not good, but that alone doesn't mean that he was not a Christian. If your dad was in some sense in bondage to alcohol, if he was in bondage to the habit, that's not good, but it doesn't mean in and of itself that he wasn't a Christian. Now, it is certainly true that it is possible for bondage to sin to mean that a person is not really right with God. That's why we read of these lists in the New Testament that say that the unrighteous, the immoral, the drunkard, the you know cowardly, on and on, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those passages are speaking about people who are in habitual bondage to those sins, and they just refuse the light to be free from those sins. It's possible that bondage to sin means that a person is not really right with God. But we don't think that when a person becomes a Christian, even a true Christian, that they stop sinning. No, we're going to sin until our sin problem is finally solved when our salvation is made complete in Jesus Christ. You see, in Jesus Christ, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's right here, right now. That's in the past. In the present moment, for all those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus makes his resurrection power available to us so that we don't have to live under the power of sin. And in our resurrection, we will one day be freed from the presence of sin. So do you see this progression? Now we're free from the penalty. We're being taken out from under the power of sin. And one day we'll be free from the presence of sin. So I can't speak to where exactly your father was in that progression. I I pray that your father was a genuine believer whom you will see in heaven, and he simply failed to take advantage of the victory that was available for him in Jesus Christ for overcoming these sinful habits. Um, One more thought. We should be growing in our walk with Jesus Christ. Hey, let's make this clear. On this side of eternity, we will never stop dealing with sin, yet there should still be a growth or a progression of our spiritual life. We should be dealing with sin on a much more basic level in our life as the years go on. Okay, great question there. Let me move on to the next question from Texas, who simply asks, What is a false conversion? So I'll just give the question to you as Texas asked it. They said this. 
What exactly is a false conversion? Is there a scripture to reference for this? How can one know for sure that they are indeed saved? Well, let me respond by saying that the idea of a false conversion is very much present in the scriptures. Let me give you one example. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, this is towards the end of Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those verses are sobering for anybody who takes them seriously. Jesus speaks of people who come before him on the day of judgment. They will um, not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Even though they thought they had a relationship with God, and even though they claimed to prophesy in the name of Jesus and cast out demons in the name of Jesus and do many wonders in the name of Jesus, Jesus will still say to them, I never knew you. I never had a true, right relationship with you. So there are those who will think that they are converted or saved, or they will claim to be converted or saved, and they are not. Now, keeping that in mind, it's important to do what 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 says. It says this, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see here, Peter calls upon us to make our calling and election sure. In other words, it's not enough for us just to say, well, am I saved or not? I think I am. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. I'll just hope for the best. No, make your calling and election sure. How do you do it? Well, let, let me give you a few very practical pointers. I'm really just trying to build on what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says this, first of all, put your trust in Jesus Christ, in who he is and in what he did for you, especially in what Jesus did on dying on the cross for you as a substitute for sin and judgment, and what Jesus did in rising from the dead, how he did this to defeat sin and death. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Secondly, confess Jesus as Lord. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says this, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Hey, that's a promise from God. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Now, that confession with the mouth, it's not just as simple as saying the words. It's saying them and having an agreement in your life with those words as well. 
but confess Jesus as Lord and do it verbally, vocally. Third, ask God for the witness of the Holy Spirit to your heart. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Well, amen for that. You want the Holy Spirit to bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And then I would say this, fourthly, come to Jesus, seek Jesus, and learn of him as a disciple learns from his master. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. You come to Jesus, he will not cast you out. You come to Jesus, and you can trust that the Father has given you to Jesus Christ. You need to trust that the word of Jesus can actually be relied upon. Friends, this is important. This is crucial. Uh, Do these things and you can rest in your soul that you have put your trust in Jesus Christ and that you are in fact saved. What you don't want to do is walk through life casually, assuming you are saved and right with God without ever doing the kinds of things that I've talked about in this answer to the question. Okay, let me continue on here. Next question comes from GMS, and they basically ask, what will Jesus look like when he returns? Okay, here's the question. GMS asked, when Jesus comes back, how will he look? What color will he be? White, black, etc.? All right, well, GMS, let me deal with that question. When we think of the appearance of Jesus, we don't have much evidence from the scriptures. We can say a few things about his appearance as he walked this earth. Number one, we know that Jesus was not a remarkably handsome man, nor did he have any other remarkable features that just made him unique. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2 says this, He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Now, there are some people who think that this only refers to the spiritual appearance of Jesus or his character. But I want you to know, I don't think that's the case. You know why? Because Jesus indeed had a beautiful character. There was something magnetic and attractive about the spiritual appearance of Jesus, so to speak. So as a man with a beautiful character, we think that these words in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, really have application to the physical appearance of Jesus. We also know that Jesus did not have an appearance that was remarkably different than the people of his time and place. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was about to be arrested, Judas, the one who betrayed him, had to identify Jesus with a signal. In fact, it was a kiss of respect and greeting. You can find that in Matthew chapter 26, verse 48. Jesus did not stand out among others with his appearance. 
with his height, his weight, his skin tone, or anything else. Look, I know we've all seen the depictions of Jesus where he he looks like a red-headed Irishman. He has this long, flowing, straight, red hair just about. And his skin is very pale and this and that. Listen, we can say with fair certainty that's not what Jesus... Judas could have just come to the Garden of Gethsemane and said, look for the redhead or something like that. But of course, Judas had to identify him specifically because there was nothing obvious in Jesus's appearance that would identify him at least at nighttime in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, based on these things, we can assume, and I'll agree it's an assumption, but it's not a crazy assumption, that Jesus was of a normal height, weight, and skin tone of the people of his time and place. This means that Jesus would have had a darker complexion than people from Northern Europe, for example. It would also mean that it would be more like the complexion of those from Southern Europe or from the Mediterranean world. However, it's also important to remember Because the question that GMS asked was not so much what Jesus looked like as he walked this earth. The question was, what will Jesus look like when he returns? Okay, it's important to remember that now Jesus has ascended to heaven and he has his resurrection body. Now, the resurrection of body looked human and not angelic. And I say angelic in that sense because... We don't really know what angels look like, but it it didn't have a appearance of transcendent glory. We see this, for example, uh, from the way that the travelers on the road to Emmaus interacted with Jesus, whom they did not know it was Jesus, as they walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. We also see from John chapter 20 that the resurrection body of Jesus still had at least some of the marks of his suffering, specifically the nail prints in his hands and the wound that was in his side. We also connect this with the vision of Jesus that we see in Revelation chapter 1. You see, this is how John saw Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Hold on for this. He said that he looked like one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, surely some of this description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 is metaphorical. It communicates to us in word pictures. But even the metaphors describe a real appearance that John saw something filled with glory and awe. I would expect that the appearance of the returning Jesus, as it's described in Revelation chapter 19, that this will be an appearance of glory, much more like what John described in Revelation chapter 1. But 
when we see these presentations of Jesus in the book of Revelation, the emphasis is not on race, saying white or black. The emphasis is on glory. He will appear. You want to know the racial appearance of Jesus? It'll be glory. If there's a glory race, Jesus is of that, of course. Okay, let me continue on here. Uh, Sadako asked this question. Do you have to belong to a particular church in order to be saved? Here's the question from Sadako. There are people who say that we will go to hell for not being in a certain church. What do you say about the church being one as a living body of believers, not being an organization or human institution? Well, Sadako, that's a great question. Let me respond or begin my response by saying, we should have a high view of the church. Why? Because God has a high view of the church. Listen, I know we see the failings and the faults of the church, and there are many, but look at how God sees the church. Go through Paul's letter to the Ephesians and note in there how God looks at his church. It's glorious. It's wonderful. God has a high view of the church. His people should have a high view of the church. However, our emphasis is not on the church as a particular organization or institution, but as something that is created by the Holy Spirit and organized by the Holy Spirit. In my mind, this is what the Apostle Paul called the unity of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. This is what he wrote there that we should be endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Friends, this describes a spiritual unity endeavoring to keep, as it says here in Ephesians 4, 3, the unity of the Spirit. This is not necessarily a structural unity or a denominational unity. You can see this unity in the Spirit in the very quick fellowship that is possible among Christians of different races, nationalities, languages, and economic classes, and I would even say of denominational backgrounds. We recognize that Jesus Christ is our common Lord and Savior, and we have the unity of the Spirit. By the way, it does not say endeavoring to keep up your ecclesiastical arrangements for centralization. It does not say endeavoring to keep the uniformity of the Spirit. No, it says endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Structural unity can even work against the true unity of the Spirit. I'm going to suggest this, that perhaps we see a purpose of God in preventing a structural unity of the church in the present age. It's to prevent misdirected 
efforts of the church, such as um, ambitions for political power that would be inappropriate from the church. God doesn't want those misdirected efforts to be fulfilled. No, instead, God has united Jew and Gentile, um, slave and free, uh, Greek and barbarian, uh, men and women together as one body. And this isn't just putting them down on the same church membership list. It means that we are united in Jesus Christ and we have a true unity of the Spirit. So I'll say this. The idea that says you have to belong to our denomination or to our particular church structure or you are not really saved, that idea is wrong and it's dangerous. It goes against what we would call the unity of the Spirit as it's proclaimed in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Okay, let me move on to the next question. It comes from Walter. He wants to know, after death and before resurrection, will we have a conscious existence? Here we go. Walter's question reads like this. I have a question regarding Daniel chapter 12, verse 13. For me, it looks like Daniel is waiting to be resurrected in the last days, and he is not in heaven or the paradise at the moment. The question is whether after death we are alive or we are actually unconscious and we do stop to exist until the resurrection. Thank you in advance. Well, Walter, happy to answer this question. And the idea that you're referring to in this is sometimes called soul sleep. It is the idea that believers, when they die, have no conscious existence until they are resurrected on the last day. Now, there are a few passages of Scripture that actually suggest this, such as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, I'll be honest with you, Walter. I don't see the Daniel 12, 13 passage as being that persuasive, but I can see where you get the idea. Daniel chapter 12, verse 13 says this, But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. So I could see from this where you would get the idea, that, okay, Daniel dies, then he rests in some kind of suspended animation, unconscious being, something like that, until the resurrection, then he regains consciousness and a resurrection body. Okay, there are a few passages that suggest this idea. The problem with the idea is that there are several other passages that directly contradict the idea of soul sleep, such as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, where we read of being absent from the body and present with the Lord. In other words, that's what Paul says happens to the believer when they die. They are absent from the body, the body's left behind, but they are present with the Lord. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 tells us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Matter of fact, that whole section in Philippians chapter 1 is very instructive because Paul said that he was hard-pressed to choose between the two. Should
should I continue on in ministry with the Philippians and other believers on this earth? But at the same time, oh, how wonderful it would be to be in heaven. Well, if Paul's choice was between ministry on earth and unconscious existence in the grave, soul sleep, then it would be a very clear choice which one was better. But to be present with the Lord or to continue ministry on earth, it's not so simple, is it? So we see here that the there are some specific passages, other passages in addition to these, that give us this important principle. Now, we need to rightly divide the word of truth. And this means bringing together all of what the Bible says about a matter and seeing how it harmonizes together. We don't use some verses to cancel out other verses, and we don't just pretend that some verses don't matter in the whole discussion. So, if all we had about the world beyond was Daniel chapter 12, verse 13, or the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, talking about the resurrection, if all we had in the scriptures was those passages, maybe we could think a little bit more about this idea of soul sleep. But the answer is simply this. Those passages are not all we have. We have many clear and convincing passages that speak to us of the truth of the fact that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Let me keep moving on. Ruth sends in this question. Uh, Will the church endure the tribulation? Here's the question a little more specifically stated. During a revelation study this week, there was a discussion on whether the church will be taken out or have to endure the tribulation. Can you address this? Okay, well, Ruth, I can address this, and let me just address it very succinctly, very briefly. I believe that the catching away of the church that is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 will happen before the tribulation. More specifically, before the last seven-year period that precedes the glorious return of Jesus Christ. That's my understanding of the scriptures, that it will happen not only before believers have to endure the great tribulation described most specifically in the book of Revelation, but also in other passages, and specifically this wrath of God that's poured out upon the earth. I definitely believe that. Now, I believe it because I perceive that this is the best way to bring together the many passages of Scripture that speak of the return of Jesus, to understand that there is, in some sense, two returns of Jesus, one that is for his people and one to return in judgment and even vengeance to a God-rejecting world. Now, there are many people who disagree with this, There are some who even mock the idea. They say things like this. Well, you say there's two comings of Jesus. How many do you want them to have? You know, how many second comings are there going to be? But listen, the first coming of Jesus had many different aspects. He came uh, when he was conceived in Mary's womb. He came when he was born in Bethlehem. He came when he emerged out of Egypt. He came when he was revealed for his ministry by John the Baptist. He came as a triumphant king on the triumphal entry recorded in all four Gospels. 
Uh, he came when he did his work on the cross, suffering and death. He came when he uh, emerged out of the tomb victorious over sin and death. There were many different aspects of the first coming of Jesus. Why should it surprise us if the second coming of Jesus has at least two significant aspects? One coming for his church, the other coming with his church. One coming to meet his people in the clouds, the other coming from the clouds to a God-rejecting earth. One coming at a time when no man knows the day or the hour, another one coming at a specifically set number of days after the abomination of desolation. One that comes to a world that is business as usual, the other one that comes to a world that has endured incredible cataclysm like has never been seen before. Now, in the last few weeks, somebody's made me aware that there's a video out there that seeks to answer or make the case against this belief that I've just stated to you, which is commonly called the pre-tribulation rapture. Look, I don't know if that's the best term for it, but I didn't come up with that term. Other people did. But there are people who argue against it very strongly, at least in their mind, it's very strong. And there's a recent video out there that seeks to make this case. I was surprised to see that this video even quotes me and it regards me as an authority for the pre-tribulation rapture position. I find that kind of fascinating because I don't consider myself a prophecy buff or expert. Now, I'm not embarrassed about my eschatology, my view on the end times. I'm happy to talk about it. And I believe that I understand what the Bible teaches with respect to other positions as well. But uh, it was just brought a little smile in my face. Well, these people think I'm some kind of authority or something on this. But let me give you my quick first impression of that video. My first impression of that video is that it is almost entirely based on a narrow, inaccurate definition of the day of the Lord. In other words, they define the day of the Lord in a certain way and then say, well, um, pre-tribulation rapture understanding doesn't fit in with this. Well, maybe the problem is with the way that you've defined the day of the Lord, not with the pre-tribulation rapture idea. Okay, anyway, I'll move on to the next question. This is a much more basic question about theology. Simply asked, are we saved by faith or only by works? Here's the question asked by conservative. Are we finally saved or judged by faith alone or by the good works produced as a result of genuine faith? All right, conservative, let me say this. The question you ask has a little bit of a complicated answer. I don't think it's super complicated, but it, it's not so simple to answer. But let me explain. We are put in right relationship with God by God's grace received by faith, received through faith, I should say. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. By grace, through faith. 
Matter of fact, Titus chapter three, verse five says, it is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So again, we have this from Titus chapter three, verse five, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but we're saved by his great mercy and his cleansing in our life. So we are put into right relationship with God, not by anything we do, but by God's grace received by faith. Yet, how we live is important. And we, when I say we, I mean every believer, every believer will come before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ to give account for how we have lived. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 says this, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You see what it says there? We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged or to receive reward for the things we have done in the body, in this life. Now, I could quote many other passages, but the essential meaning here is plain. We are made right with God by God's grace through faith, but how we live is also important before God. And believers will have their life and their works judged. I don't say that to bring undue fear in anybody's life, but maybe a sober pause and consideration. Brother, sister, you do not want to have a saved soul in a wasted life. How you live for Jesus matters right now for time and eternity. Let me move on to the next question. It comes from Kristana. Kristana asks this. I've heard a pastor say that people who don't tithe and or volunteer at a church are a burden to the church. What are your thoughts? Wow, that's quite a question there, isn't it? <laughs> are those who don't tithe or volunteer a burden to the church? Okay, Kristana, thank you for your question. Let me answer it this way. First, I don't think that this is a good or helpful way to describe things. If somebody isn't giving, if somebody isn't serving in a church, I don't think it's good or I don't think it's helpful to just say, oh, you're a burden to the church. Hey, some people come to church and they genuinely need a period of just being poured into. This is especially true of people who have come from bad church environments. And look, let's be real. They're out there, aren't they? There are some bad church environments out there. And people who suffer under bad church environments oftentimes need to go to a healthy church and not do anything in service. Maybe not even give for a period of time. They need to just be poured into. Now, I do believe that 
every Christian should have an intentional way that they serve God and further his kingdom. I believe that. And I do believe that every Christian should be a giver. I believe that also. Yet, if you want to put it in these terms, if you don't tithe, if you don't volunteer, you're a burden to the church. That sounds to me like a way to use guilt as a motivation. We should never use guilt or manipulation as a way to motivate God's people, even though those methods often work. You can find a fair measure of success if you try to motivate people by a guilt or manipulation, but it doesn't mean that we should do it. Now, I agree wholeheartedly that we need to get away from what you might call consumer Christianity, where people come to a church or they look for a church purely with the thinking, hey, what are you going to do for me? That's not healthy. And that, in fact, has done a lot of damage in the church. But there are seasons when a believer just needs to receive and not be pressured to give or to serve. In a healthy environment, those things will come later. And not all service needs to be done within the church. There are wonderful ways to serve God and to advance his kingdom apart from serving in a church. Now, I praise the Lord for many faithful servants in churches. Thank the Lord for them. But you can legitimately and wonderfully serve the Lord outside of the walls of your church. Okay, well, I hope that's helpful for you, uh, Christana. And uh, I pray that God would give us all the gift of a wonderful, healthy church environment. Hey, if you're in a good church, a church that's healthy, a church that has good teaching of the word, a church that truly worships God, a church that really wants to reach a needy world. If you have a church like that, thank the Lord for it. Don't take it for granted. It's a gift from the Lord and something we should all be very grateful for. All right, well, that's going to be it for today. God bless you. I'm so pleased that you could join me on this question and answer time. Uh, in the future, when I'm able to, we'll do these live. When I'm not able to, to the best of my ability, we will record them. I suppose if a week or two goes by where I'm not able to do one at all, well, that's okay. It's not the end of the world. But I'm glad you could join me for this. Uh, pray for God's continued blessing on you. And thank you for joining me today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.